that's why you, when you look at the amount of money that comes into Puerto Rico from federal funding, for example, and you compare it to the amount of money that leaves Puerto Rico and you combine the taxes and you combine the, the consumption of uh, U.S. goods, you see that it, it's three, four, five times the amount of money. So more money leaves Puerto Rico into the U.S. market than the money that comes into Puerto Rico from the U.S. federal government. So having such, uh, such an important base of consumption has motivated the U.S. to maintain Puerto Rico in this uh, political and legal limbo for 120 plus years. Hello there. Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. What's up, friends, co-disciples, comrades, whoever you are? The next episode will be the last of the first and greatest commandment of capitalism series, and it's going to be on how the capitalist imperative of endless expansion and ceaseless growth in a very finite world impacts nature, the planet, and the rest of God's beloved creation. The development of the climate crisis cannot be understood, let alone adequately addressed, without acknowledging capitalism's role in driving individual capitalists and their nations to commodify not just human labor and housing, as we've already talked about in this series, but literally everything it can, even if that means the end of human existence. But more on that next time. So far, we've discussed how capitalism's greatest commandment impacts working peoples, debtors, and the majority of human beings who primarily want to use housing as a place for living, dwelling, and building community. With homelessness, tenantry, and private debt rising every year, the majority of people in the U.S., and of course throughout the world, are being pushed to their literal limits. But today, we're going to look at two essential lifelong partners of capitalism that remain largely ignored in the mainstream discourse among professional economists. Yet, even on the rare occasion, these uniquely brutal dynamics of a capitalist world order are given the slightest bit of attention. They're often written off as aberrations, as irregularities, completely unrelated from an otherwise fair and just and life-giving system. And the two companions of capitalism are otherwise known as imperialism and colonialism. Despite defenders of capitalism ingraining in us the idea that capitalism is the most freedom and equality and justice-loving system that could ever exist, especially compared to the variety of anti-capitalist alternatives that haunt its failures, its hierarchies, and its extreme inequalities and instability. Capitalism has always depended upon expansionary imperialist projects and the legitimization of colonialism as tools for rapidly speeding up the production of profits, the private or national accumulation of wealth, the continual recreation of working-class dependency upon capitalists for wages and credit and housing, 
and the transformation of entire communities and nations into highly policed and subordinated human machines that spend the majority of their waking hours laboring, just to have the fruits of their labor ripped from their hands by employers, creditors, and lenders, landlords, and by governments that are fashioned in the image of their almighty capitalist elites. And to help us get a glimpse as to why the primary goal of capitalism greets imperialism and colonialism with open arms, Andrew Mercado Vesquez, host of the Puerto Rico Forward podcast of the Democracy at Work Network, is going to talk to us about what capitalism has to do with the fact that in 2019, Puerto Rico remains a colony of the U.S. In 2019, the people of Puerto Rico are still the colonial subjects of the U.S. In 2019, the United States of America owns all the land, natural resources, and fruits produced by Puerto Rican labor, whether Puerto Ricans want their land and labor to be under our Congress's governance or not. But before we get to the interview, I hope you don't mind me taking a little bit of time to set up some of the key ideas behind what Mr. Mercado Vasquez will say, as well as some stuff about whiteness and anti-racism that I personally think is pertinent to this conversation, as well as any discussion on the intersections of American colonialism, capitalism, and white supremacy. Towards the end of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th, U.S. American literature becomes flooded with bits of sadness, confusion, and curiosity. And these sentiments that consume much of the imagination of the time surrounds the fact that the U.S. has hit the western edge of California. At first glance, there is no more land to immediately invade, no more people to annihilate, displace, assimilate, or convert. Instead, there is just a big body of water. The feelings of sadness, confusion, and curiosity emerged from a bit of what we could call an identity crisis for white capitalist America. Who are we if we are not colonizers? Who are we if we are not raiders and rapists of indigenous peoples and communities? How can we be white Americans, and for many at the time, white Christians, if there are not people west of us to be displaced, kidnapped, and rounded up for camps to then be taught the gospel of the white man. These habits and practices had been a defining characteristic of the nation since before its birth, and the possibility of its expansionary commitments ending made white America question who it could possibly be if it could no longer invade, extract, control, and proselytize. However, I do think it is important to note that this historical narrative, when told by folks who genuinely want to uncover and highlight our nation's white racism, is told almost solely through a lens of race, a or non-economically, meaning the system of capitalism, its societal concentration of wealth and power, its class structure at our places of work, its infinite drive for growth and greater profits. These powerful factors never make it into the story as to how and why 
the U.S. kept expanding not only its land base, but its economic and military power, even once they hit the edge of California. But I think it's so important we add an analysis of capitalism to mainstream historical narratives for two big reasons. The first is that both race and class, whiteness and capitalism, worked together to ravage the numerous indigenous nations. I can't re recommend the book um, in, An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz enough. And there's now a shorter version for teens that youth ministers listening in could be getting into the hands of our youth. But um, adding an analysis of class and capitalism helps us not only understand what has happened in the past, but what continues to happen today. Which leads me to the second reason. Uncovering the ways in which capitalism has partnered with U.S. imperialism can also help reveal a myth about whiteness. Not only is whiteness itself a lie, a fact lots of centrists and leftists are willing to acknowledge, but the ideology of whiteness and the structurally induced material and psychological benefits of white supremacy were never supposed to benefit all white people equally. Hear me out. The perpetual invasion of indigenous nations west of the border of the U.S. mainland up through the 19th century was never really done for all who were racialized as white. While white people were widely unified in their anti-Indian, anti-black, anti-Mexican, and anti-Chinese racism, the conquering and subordinating of whomever was labeled as the other was primarily done so for the nation's economic and political white male capitalist elites who ruled over the masses, including the vast majority of working class whites a reality no different from our wars today. Yes, white solidarity disproportionately harms the bodies and minds of whomever is racialized as non-white at that period of time. But white solidarity also occurs at the expense of the majority of people who think of themselves as white. It's a trick. Under capitalism, white solidarity masks the systemic and material inequality of both power and wealth among whites and disguises the separation of white people into two groups, a minority class of subordinators and a majority class of subordinates. That's why in a white supremacist nation that talks of itself as the global defender of freedom and democracy, you can have both whites who privately possess billions, and whites who heat their homes with their ovens. All this to say that, contrary to the common assumption that whiteness benefits all white people equally, white solidarity, at the end of the day, has always been used to deceive the majority of people racialized as white into thinking they have more in common with white elites, white bosses, white lenders, white landlords, the puppet politicians of the rich, and even the white military and police members than they do with fellow working class neighbors of color. Which is also a major contributing factor to how the majority of white U.S. Americans, as poor and impoverished as they were, 
as subordinated and exploited as they were at work and in their communities, thought that the 1898 news of Guam, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico being annexed by the U.S. was actually done for them. Up until that point, Puerto Ricans had been the colonial subjects of Spain. Now, the U.S. Congress would be their new dictator. A few things to be listening for in my interview with Mr. Mar Mercado Vasquez. What does it really mean that, in 2019, Puerto Rico is a colony of the U.S.? How has the role that Puerto Rico plays shifted for the United States' economic interests? How much wealth is being extracted from Puerto Rico every year versus how much does the U.S. give back to the people? I think the status of Puerto Rico as a colony of the U.S. provides an excellent example as to why capitalism is not anti-unfreedom, anti-oppression, or anti-colonialism even. Rather, capitalism has always depended upon imperialism and colonialism in its faithful obedience to the god that is growth. Capitalism needs war. All right, to wrap this introduction up, I, I wanted to offer just one last remark on what I believe anti-racist analysis and praxis might include. Given that white supremacy is so pertinent to the topic of this episode, even though we don't get to dive into it um, as deeply as we did last episode, uh, anti-racism certainly cannot be a call for colorblindness, but it also can't just be about revealing the material and psychological privileges that many whites exploit at the expense of folks of color. Anti-racist theory and praxis requires we uncover and subvert how capitalism uses white identity to disguise the capitalist class structure at work, to hide the inequality of power in our communities, and to control the masses of working class people of all racialized groupings, including people who currently think of themselves as white. Okay, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Andrew Mercado Vasquez of the Puerto Rico Forward podcast. Andrew Mercado Vasquez, welcome to Faith in Capital. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's go ahead and uh, dive into the conversation. And um, before we get to talking about like what the primary goal of capitalism has to do uh, with all of this, let's go ahead and start with the colonial status of PR. So what does it, help us understand, what does it mean that Puerto Rico is a U.S. colony? And what are the political implications, say, for the average Puerto Rican, because Puerto Rico is a colony as opposed to being a state or being fully independent? Well, the, the implications for people that live in Puerto Rico uh, to their personal life as a result of living within a colonial territory are mostly legal, but they do spill over into the economic realm uh, because having that type of status basically hovering over your head implies that you don't have the same rights, you don't have the same privileges. Uh, for example, the Constitution doesn't apply completely to uh, the people that live in Puerto Rico, the U.S. Constitution. So the U.S. Constitution's fundamental rights, whatever those are, 
they do apply, but slowly they've been uh, considered through different court cases. So that's one thing. So the U.S. Constitution in its totalitarian, in its, in its entirety, doesn't apply to the people of Puerto Rico, uh, even though we are U.S. citizens from since 1917. So that would be one specific difference. Beyond that, you also have uh, the implication of having the right of re representation within the governing body uh, of the U.S. federal government. We don't have a vote in Congress. What we do have is a representative. Uh, it's called the resident commissioner, but she has no real, she has no vote at all. She has a voice, but no vote. And uh, beyond that, we also have no way of having any real specific direct impact on presidential elections. So from the, from the point of view of civics, uh, the people of Puerto Rico are disenfranchised. Yeah, and as you so helpfully uh, explain and articulate uh, through your work on your podcast, um, can you help us really uh, understand Congress, uh, the role of Congress in making decisions over the, again, the political um, life of Puerto Rico? The, the way that this works is the following. Puerto Rico, and, and if, we could put, if we just set aside uh, fancy legal terms, Puerto Rico, from the most practical point of view, is a place where Congress has free realm. Um, why do I say that? Well, it's because Congress has the ability, obviously, to approve laws. And when it comes to the specific case of a colonial territory such as Puerto Rico, it, Congress has the ability of treating Puerto Rico as a state in some cases and as a foreign jurisdiction in other cases. So the ability of Congress to uh, decide whether or not to treat Puerto Rico under a specific policy as it would treat a state or as it would treat a foreign jurisdiction is completely theirs. So it's to their full discretion to determine when Puerto Rico is going to play by what rules. So not only do they have the ability of, uh, of determining when Puerto Rico is on equal stance with the states, but they also have the ability of determining uh, under what conditions that is played out to be. So if we set aside all the fancy legal terminology that's usually surrounding this situation, Puerto Rico has full, full control over the destiny of Puerto Rico. I'm sorry, Congress has full control over the destiny of Puerto Rico. And Congress doesn't need anyone else's permission to do what it thinks is um, to its liking with Puerto Rico. It doesn't even have to consult the people of Puerto Rico. So how do the economic conditions of Puerto Rico compare to the economic conditions of U.S. mainland? And what would you say to someone who assumes, uh, you know, Puerto Rico's economic conditions is the way it is primarily because, say, Puerto Rico's own government corruption or simply because of natural disasters, unfortunate national disasters, right? Like, how does PR, uh, being the colony of another country, shape its economic power and well-being? Well... The people of Puerto Rico and the, the economy of Puerto Rico uh, are very are, are under very different um, influences than it would from the mainland. So I don't think it would be appropriate to compare the U.S.'s economy with Puerto Rico's economy. The, the situation is just completely different. Puerto Rico is an archipelago. Puerto Rico has different uh, has access to different types of markets than the U.S. mainland would be. Um, so, being able to compare those two is kind of an exercise of ignoring blatant differences. Also, 
um, when you have a conversation about economic indicators or having the ability to structure an economy into specific statistical groups, you have to take into consideration how those statistics are handled. And I'm not going to go into it because I would be stepping out of the, the realm of our conversation, but for example, for, for a good uh, critic on how GDP has been handled historically and how it's shaped, uh, I would refer to Michael Hudson's work on, in the book Killing the Host, where he emphasizes that, historically speaking, being able to take income and not breaking it into whether it's earned or unearned is an exercise of, of inflating GDP to a certain point. So I wouldn't really compare Puerto Rico's and the U.S.'s uh, economic indicators or how the economy on paper looks. First, because as I said, Puerto Rico and the U.S. have very different uh, circumstances. And second, because the indicators themselves uh, don't really reflect a, a true picture of the local economy. Now, what I will say is economic policy. Economic policies in Puerto Rico are implemented differently when it comes to the philosophy of what the economy should do. For example, in Puerto Rico, you have Acts 20 and 22 of 2012. Those two acts, between the two of them, do two things. First, they allow for people that from outside of Puerto Rico, within a certain income bracket, to come to Puerto Rico and basically live tax-free. So it's a huge windfall for the, the one percenters, if you want to call them that. So Puerto Rico has these, these this population coming into it. They are living in Puerto Rico uh, for some time of the year in which they're really not contributing uh, from the tax base point of view to how the country is, is run. And then you have the other act, uh, which specifically says that if you're a corporation and you establish your services in Puerto Rico, but you render those services to, to markets outside of Puerto Rico, uh, what you pay is about 4% on, on taxes. So first you have a policy of rich people come to Puerto Rico and you don't have to pay taxes here, we'll cater to you. And on the other hand, you have a policy of huge corporations come to Puerto Rico, uh, establish your operations here, and we'll give you a huge tax exemption as long as your service or your, your, your goods or services that you generate don't benefit the people of Puerto Rico. So from economic policy standpoint, Puerto Rico has always been looked as the means to an end, not actually the subject of the policy. And it also harkens back to uh, the, uh, the original policy that was in place up to 2016 or 2006 sorry, in which you have a, a Section 936 of the U.S. Internal Revenue Code that gave huge tax exemptions to, to huge uh, U.S. corporations coming to Puerto Rico and establishing their operations here and not really providing any real sustainable impact on the economy other than um, providing a few jobs or, or other things of the sort. But Again, we're seeing policies implemented in Puerto Rico, always looking at Puerto Rico not as the object of economic growth, but the means to uh, increase wealth for corporations and, and people already have a lot of money. So, so putting aside the economic indicators and putting aside the, the purely economic uh, talk, because I'm not an economist, 
But from the point of view of a lawyer, you look at these policies and you clearly see a trend where Puerto Rico is nothing more than a means to an end. The policies themselves really don't have Puerto Rico's uh, economic future at their at their center. Yeah, and you're really you're really getting at our next question. Um, but so right here, what does what would you say that capitalism, if at all, what what does capitalism's primary goal? of the ceaseless movement of profit-making or endless compound growth um, have to do with the colonial relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico, right? Like how is American capitalism and what I hear you even talking about just tax breaks for incredibly wealthy individuals and corporations have to do with U.S. imperialism? Well, I mean, the the prime motivating factors that determine the U.S.'s involvement in a in basically controlling Puerto Rico uh, were of uh, economic nature, specifically uh, at the end of the 19th century when the U.S. starts getting involved in the Spanish-American War. Uh, What was happening, at least at that point, was expansionism, obviously, but it was motivated with the intention of finding new markets for U.S. capital and having the ability of not having to slow down production in the U.S. by being able to acquire access to new markets was, was generally the motivating factor between, behind those types of imperial policies. Uh, and Puerto Rico is not, is not an exception. Uh, and you also have uh, economic motivations or, or capitalist motivations, but not necessarily directly tied to uh, the activity of capital itself or generating capital itself, but rather securing the ability to have access and to uh, protect your own markets as well. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because Puerto Rico, having its location where, where it is in the, in the Caribbean, that location was very important for the U.S. to secure its, uh, its long-term policies because at the time that this happened, you had, the Panama Canal hadn't been constructed yet. And actually, at that time, it was it was uh, seen as being a canal through another uh, Central American country. And so what was happening at that point was that the U.S. was trying to secure access to that economic uh, valley, that, that basically economic, economic passage point between the East Coast and the West Coast. And then having a place like Puerto Rico there allowed you to move your navy, move your, your merchant ships around easier. So Puerto Rico's geographic location also served the interests of uh, the U.S.'s capitalist expansionist agenda because it allowed uh, grasp on the region. And if you have a grasp on the region and you don't have to be worrying about um, you know, some other country acquiring that access point and you having to pay that other country levies, then you're, you're securing uh, a greater foothold for your own markets. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a complicated story because it's not just being motivated by uh, capitalism itself, but it's also being motivated by the strategies that play behind the expansionary uh, missions that are motivated by the capitalism. So if I if I hear if I'm hearing you correctly, um, not only is Puerto Rico, the island and the 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 people there a source for wealth extraction, but it is also a strategic way of kind of keeping competition limited or um, keeping competition at bay. Well, at least at that point it was because it it if you look at the technology, the shipping technology, 
it was right at the end of the Steam uh, engine. So the, the need to have a place, a waypoint so you to, for you to recharge and to be a resupply was very uh, necessary. And also, you needed to have a, a base of operations because if you look at the map on the other side of the Caribbean, you have Europe. You have these potential superpowers that at the time uh, were a threat for the U.S. because they also wanted to compete for that type of area. So Puerto Rico served a dual purpose historically. Not only did it allow the U.S. to have an economic foothold, but it also allowed uh, for its security interests to be maintained. Now, you forward into our time. Um, the situation has changed because of the technology has changed. So you don't need the same uh, the same type of geographic locations that you did before. But the uh, the fundamental logic behind having Puerto Rico has been kept the same. So that's why you, when you look at the amount of money that comes into Puerto Rico from federal funding, for example, and you compare it to the amount of money that leaves Puerto Rico, and you combine the taxes, when you combine the consumption the consumption of uh, U.S. goods, you see that it, it's three, four, five times the amount of money. So more money leaves Puerto Rico into the U.S. market than the money that comes into Puerto Rico from the U.S. federal government. So having such, uh, such an important base of consumption has motivated the U.S. to maintain Puerto Rico in this uh, political and legal limbo for 120 plus years. Yeah, and and I think that's um, that's a really important thing to uh, to 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 name one more time is that you're saying that every single year some four to five uh, times amount of wealth is being extracted out of Puerto Rico than what the U.S. is putting in. That's correct. Yeah. I mean the uh, the amount of billions of dollars that constantly leave. Puerto Rico's local economic markets and goes into the hands of the of U.S. corporations or U.S. entities or U.S. Uh, people uh, or individuals that live in the U.S. is three, four, five times over, and it's, uh, it's on a yearly basis. So the the ability to have a an archipelago with millions of people on. And for you to be able to identify what policies you're going to implement in that piece of earth so that those policies end up or turn out huge amounts of profits for your local markets is a tool in being able to secure your, your economic dominance. So that situation is beneficial for, for, for the U.S. markets. And if we have any doubts about that, if we want to... If we want to even for a moment entertain the narrative of President Trump and other uh, and other individuals that are constantly trying to sell to you, the U.S. population over there, that somehow Puerto Rico has taken advantage of the U.S. or somehow Puerto Rico's situation with the U.S. outweighs the benefits towards Puerto Rico than it does the U.S. or that the people of Puerto Rico should somehow be constantly grateful and, you know, worshiping the ground that the members of U.S. Congress walk on, um, then you just have to look at the numbers. And then you realize who depends on who. Mm. You, you would not have a situation of a, uh, over a century, 120 years, in which the U.S. Uh, markets would be losing. It wouldn't happen. Specifically, when Congress has already, and, and, and 
the United States Supreme Court has already determined that Congress has plenary powers over Puerto Rico. So it wouldn't make any sense at all to accept the premise that Puerto Rico's relationship with the U.S. Congress is to its own benefit and in detriment to U.S. interests when it's the U.S. who is the driver of the car, has the car keys, and has been driving it the way it wants to drive it for 120 years. It makes no sense. So those narratives clash with the reality of things in which Puerto Rico truly is being extracted um, all the wealth that it can from its population. It has a consumer base, and that consumer base has been very beneficial for U.S. markets. If I'm not mistaken, we have uh, more, I think it's Walmarts or Walgreens. I always get those two mixed up per square mile than any other place in the U.S. Wow. I mean, yeah, this is uh, this has been really helpful here. Um, and unfortunately, we're wrapping up our time here. But would you uh, to, to kind of wrap this up? What, what would you recommend going forward? Right. Um, how would you respond to someone here in the U.S. mainland who says, well, Congress should should make PR a state or that there should be an immediate vote tomorrow or that Congress should, you know, uh, make PR a, an independent country? Yeah. How, what do you, there, there's lots of uh, ideas floating around, right? Um, and so, yeah, how, what do you suggest moving forward? Well, first off, before you even consider what, what Puerto Rico should be, we need to change the narrative about what Puerto Rico is. Um, we can no longer continue using the word Commonwealth to describe Puerto Rico uh, because Commonwealth really doesn't describe any political status. I mean, you have states that are the Commonwealth, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, for example. And so the reason I say that is because unless we start changing the way that we view Puerto Rico, we won't want to change its, its status. So that's the first thing. Let's start calling Puerto Rico what it is, the U.S. polity. Um, second, straight to your question, being able to determine what Puerto Rico's status is, should be is not an issue or it's not a question that can be answered in a lapse of 90 days like some uh, uh, bills of, uh, have been presented in Congress. You know, you cannot try to uh, consider the economic, the social, the legal implications, the transition periods necessary in order for the status change not to completely alter uh, a, an, an already weak economy. So the question really is, what process do we need to implement in order to have a non-colonial status implemented in Puerto Rico? And the one that I suggest is also the, is always the constitutional status assembly. It's different than a plebiscite because it allows for a debate a debate process to uh, take place in which each status option is defined by the population that supports it here in Puerto Rico. And once that status that status option has been defined properly, that status option is taken to Congress, and a period of negotiation goes underway in which both parties determine the length of time for transition, what, what status action would imply, what type of economic uh, changes. And it's a conversation that would take years, but it needs to begin. But we cannot allow the desire to change Puerto Rico's status option to be used against the people of Puerto Rico and have a policy that is just like um, Congressman Del Soto tried to or presented before Congress, where it was a 90-day period where Puerto Rico just suddenly becomes a state. And, and you can't do that either, certainly with Puerto Rico becoming an independent country. So honestly, it needs to be a, a dialogue. It can't be just a quick open and shut decision. Andrew uh, Mercado Vasquez, thank you so much for joining us on Faith and Capital. I, I've 
found this a very interesting conversation, and I think uh, many of our listeners will too. Um, where can we find you and uh, the work that you're continuing to do? Well, uh, Puerto Rico Forward is a project where, where I collaborate with uh, Democracy at Work, which is a non uh, nonprofit in New York, based in New York, and they focus on uh, economic and worker issues. So you can find most of our content on their page, which is uh, democracyatwork.info. Um, we also have a web page, which is puertoricoforward.com, uh, but we're completely uh, supported and funded by the listeners. So if you want to support this movement and you want to help us out, uh, you can go to our uh, Patreon page, and there you can find all our content. But of course, it's uh, the podcast is free of that. It's uh, free to access on usual platforms like Spotify and iTunes. So um, we appreciate the support, and we appreciate everyone listening in because the project is about bringing Puerto Rico forward into the political limelight of the U.S. mainstream. Excellent. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. No problem. Friends, thanks for listening. And a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.